Tom Hatzes sits with us today on the black chair, examining trial records and the pharmacopoeia of witches, alchemists, folk healers, and heretics of the 15th century, and details how a range of ideas from folk drugs to ecclesiastic fears over medicine women merged to form the classic witch stereotype and what history has called the witch's ointment. This book is very well documented. Uh, it has a very big section in the end of notes. Um, it looks like this is actually a, uh, well, it is in, in a way, an academic work. Was this your intention in the beginning? Well, it was actually originally slanted to, for an academic press. It was actually originally slanted for University of Pennsylvania Press. And right. um, when um, Inner Traditions Parchery Press heard about that, right. they were like, oh, no, 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 no. We, we want this book. Right. And um, I, the truth is I... I uh, I'm much happier with uh, Inner Traditions because uh, had it been published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, it would just be sitting on bookshelves in academic libraries in America, so to speak. Whereas with a, a popular publication, I, I want to make this information available to the non-specialist. Right, right. Had yeah. it been published by an academic press, it would have just stayed in the realm of the specialist. And um, that's why it's so heavily noted. That's why, I, I mean, the bulk of the book is me actually just trying to demonstrate that these ointments existed because your your listeners might not know this, but academic consensus holds that these ointments did not exist at all. So the, the bulk of the book had been slanted towards University of Pennsylvania Press, and that's why so much of it is me demonstrating, and that's where the, the copious notes comes in, to demonstrate that these things did exist and that they were used for entheogenic purposes. Why was this important for you? Uh, just a, uh, not so much. Well, because truth is important to me. It, it's just, I want to, I want to know again, it goes back to that whole thing. Do we want to, for egotistical and emotional reasons, pretend to know what people were like in the past or do we want to know what they were actually like in the past i want to know i i was proved wrong a million times doing my research right because that's just the kind of person i am when when something i'm i'm very easy uh, my mind has changed very easily you just show me evidence for your claim and it doesn't matter how stringent i am against your claim if you show me evidence i'm going to adopt your your position because that's just how I am. One of the interesting things about this book is that you do have pieces of narrative that illustrates how these people probably behaved, almost a description of an enactment of behavior um, from these practitioners at the time. And also, you would have descriptions on how uh, the interaction was done between them and their own uh, clients. Then you have the presentation of the facts, historical facts, um, etc. The way that the book is put together is very interesting because it gives us a little bit of a glimpse into the past, not only because of the presentation of the facts, but also because of these narratives. Was this the way that you intended to put the book together in the beginning? Um, it mostly came up when I was putting the book together. I wanted to give a, a historical context um, for where and how and why uh, the, these ointments just suddenly appear in the record. I mean, it, it's very, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's not overnight because <laughs> nothing is, but um, in, until you put a microscope on the records and see how they played out and dig up some other records that hadn't really been seen before, um, you you realize that there's there's a whole kind of thing going on here. As far as setting up, you know, the stories and everything like that, it was just um, uh, I just find it's the easiest way to communicate um, complex information. Um, these are, you know, how do you, how do you make, uh, you know, uh, medieval medical 
uh, treatises sound interesting <laughs> to the average reader. And um, if, if you can set it up almost as a narrative and show just what played out, um, you know, so far as we can tell from historical documents, it's just an easier way. I think it's easier for a reader to digest all that. Um, I also don't know how to be boring, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, you're most certainly not boring at all, um, and your work is not boring. I'm just saying this because um, it really is very... The narratives that you present are very, very good. Uh, would you consider writing a book just based on narratives um, that are based, of course, you know, let's just say... An historical novel, because the this material that you put it together, um, that you these illustrations or descriptions are very very good. I I very much appreciate that. Um, I mean, I guess my 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 answer to that is that I'm going to keep trying to bring those aspects into a more historical medium, right. Um, in the sense that, like, I I understand why most people can't stand history. I get it. Mo most history is very, very, very boring. Um, so what I'd rather do is um, have, a, um, have that middle ground where I'm writing history, but almost in novel form. A, a friend of mine... Um, had commented a few months ago, he read it actually, he read the book before it came out. Um, he said that it, it reads like a Tarantino film. It does. It actually that, does. That's, that's a very good comfort. Yeah. That's yeah. Really yeah. And, and I thought about that. I'm like, yeah, if you were to pick this book up and read it starting in the middle or read three chapters of it and that's it, it wouldn't make any sense at all. Like it's you, you kind of just like if you were to walk into a Tarantino film in the middle of it, you wouldn't really know what's going on. Um, right. So I guess artistically speaking, that's that's pretty cool. It was a very nice compliment. Uh, at least I took it as a compliment. But um, maybe from a, um, a marketing perspective, uh, it, it's probably not the best idea to write, uh, to write history books that way. So maybe you're right. Maybe I should uh, start uh, thinking about writing a novel instead. <laughs> right, right. Um, the other thing is that you bothered a lot of people because you didn't find, and you said that in the book, you didn't find any historical proof that the witch's ointment was actually rubbed in broomsticks and was used um, as a masturbation device. Well, uh, yeah, I have. I've bothered, bothered a lot of people um, because so we're living in an age where narrative takes the place of fact. And most people would rather be right than know. I'm somebody who would rather know. I don't have egotistical and emotional needs to be right. And because of that, I um, it, it allows me to just see the evidence for what it says without straying too far from the mind of the person wielding the pen that wrote the source. And it's, um, there, there are a lot of, uh, very, um, intriguing ideas out there about what the witch's ointment actually was. And, that's fine. Most of them are based off of forgeries, uh, which is what I think bothers a lot of people because they, they, they tend to say, "Oh, well, look at this source." Like they'll say, like uh, Robert, uh, what was his name? Robert Langdon Lameth or something, who wrote this huge forgery that uh, I mean, it's been completely debunked in scholarship, but popular popular culture doesn't know that. <laughs> they don't know that a lot of these ideas have been completely discredited. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, it's it's interesting because it seems as if so I, I I look at it like this to to really get down to the question. Do you want to be right for egotistical and emotional reasons, or do you want to know what a wise woman living in Italy in the early fifteenth century was actually like and what she might have actually done? Well, if you just want to be right, well, there's a whole host of 
poorly researched internet articles for you to Google and confirm everything, all your confirmation biases, everything you want to believe already. Um, and there's uh, one book <laughs> that I know of that is more in, well, I want to know what these people actually believed and what they practiced. So I tried my best to let those people speak for themselves without my own 21st century internet article biases coming into the fray. I could have sold a lot more books, I'm sure, if I would have just catered to what the internet says. Um, but I have academic integrity, integrity, so I didn't do that. Right, right. So this idea of the witch's rubbing ointment into an inanimated object, like the broom, yes. right? Uh, it's pretty recent. This is a conjecture of 1973. Well, with the broomstick. Right, right, right. Yes. But is there any evidence in your research that these ointments were, uh, yes, rubbed the same way, um, but in with with the fingers, for instance? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that um, sometimes it's misconstrued when I when I say that uh, there's no evidence that anybody ever applied a hallucinogenic salve, or I, I like to say entheogen, um, entheogen, yeah, salve mm -hmm. uh, to a broom and masturbated with it. That does not mean that people didn't also apply these entheogenic salves to their fingers and right. <laughs> inject, you know, ingest it that way. People did do that, and I just I don't see why we have to invent and carry on i mean what what really amounts to conjecture from an anthropologist in 1973 but again it's narrative over fact it's a very intriguing narrative so everybody believes it when i think that the narrative that these people were what was actually going on that they were worshiping fertility goddesses and that this practice was demonized by the church i mean first of all there's historical legitimacy to that right and second of all that seems like a, a pretty intriguing narrative to me um and certainly it was at least for me it was worth pursuing um it's i, I mean google any any internet article about the whole broom masturbation myth thing and you're gonna find not a one actual source to back up the claim everybody says it but it all goes back to essentially michael harner in 1973 who didn't offer any evidence for it, never even pretended that it was a historical datum, and <laughs> just offered it as conjecture. But it's where, again, it's the age of narrative over fact, and if it's conjecture that sounds interesting, people are going to say that it's true. But And, and don't get me wrong, I would be psyched if somebody could come up with one record that actually details somebody delivering an entheogenic uh, substance or ointment in this fashion, like with a broom masturbating with it. Mm -hmm. I think that'd be really cool. Uh, like most people, it would be really, really cool. Uh, the, the difference is I've looked at the records and there's nothing there. And it's not just me. I mean, there are plenty of people that have looked over these records and haven't found this either. So it's just, it, it's, What's more likely, really, that some guy in 1973 invented it and pretty much admitted that he was inventing it at the time, right? Um, or that people really would contend with the splinters <laughs> 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 that would undoubtedly poke the inner lining of the vaginal walls or the rectum. Um, brooms in those days, I mean, brooms weren't even the... the, the primary thing that people were said to fly in in the early trials they usually just said sticks yes so it's like, and and yeah. also goats so they used they talk about using goats to fly yes of course yes so, and, and, exactly. and mules exactly so my question is so were these people also rubbing goats goats with hallucinogenic ointments and shoving them up their vaginas probably not <laughs> probably not <laughs> probably not just as much as they weren't using brooms to do that either it's just right it's not, right you know, it's not a viable theory. It's it's it, it. Some guy said it, and everybody just kind of took the ball and ran with it. I, I and, and when I let me say when I started my research, I went into my research thinking that that was true, but I changed my mind because the evidence is just not there. 
Now, did you, uh, which is ointment is, is it, isn't it not a term, a very broad term for everything and anything really related with uh, anything that you would um, rub or pass or, you know? Uh, well, it, it's, it's weird because it wasn't so much broad as it was a very specific mm -hmm. practice that was demonized. Um, when I first started my research, I thought that, I was under the impression that an entheogenic ointment and a flying ointment were the same thing. They were just lumped together into one kind of ointment. Mm -hmm. But as I looked deeper, I discovered that there were entheogenic ointments that had nothing to do with flying. There were flying ointments that had nothing to do with entheogenic experiences. And there were entheogenic flying ointments, which were, were mixes of the two. Mm -hmm. It seems as if the one that it's this last one that actually caused such a problem for demonologists because it was mixing. It wasn't so much the flying aspect of it as these people taking it believed that they were following in the trail of a goddess and it had more to do with goddess worship. And that's what the problem was. It wasn't that ointments, uh, psychoactive ointments were demonized as a whole. It was the worship of fertility goddesses that was demonized. And these entheogenic ointments just so happened to be one way of practicing that belief. Mm -hmm. And that practice was what served as the foundation for the witch's ointment. Mm -hmm. It's very complicated, I know, but... Uh, no, no, yeah, yeah. Now, the other thing that you find out, I guess, it was also that there was a lack of mentioning exactly what drug herb or you know drug was implicit yes. into these um into these recipes um you do list in the book a couple of them and you go through the historical you know what, what did he do etc etc um uh, there are some recipes that actually say what it is but there's a lot of them that it didn't and this this is one of the things that actually surprised you i guess when you yes when you were doing your research. Yes, our modern, or at least my modern, um, desire to know what was in the ointments was not the desire of the inquisitors writing about them, so to speak. They didn't care. It wasn't, it, it, again, the, the, larger, the larger condemnation was against fertility goddess worship. Right. So whether you were using an entheogenic ointment to do that or not didn't matter. Uh, extrapolating on that point, what was in the entheogenic ointment didn't matter. Most of the time, the word that'll just come up is vene, V-E-N-E, -E, which uh, we get the word venom uh, mm -hmm. from it, uh, which in context either means drug or poison. And that's right. all you get because they didn't, uh, they didn't care. They didn't have the same, uh, let's, let's say, research goals that I had. It didn't, you know, they were trying to get to the, the bottom of a, uh, an act that they saw as harmful. There, since there wasn't really any kind, there weren't drug laws yet. Or, I, I mean, it, it's odd because there were laws against drugging another person, but there were no laws against self-drugging. So, since there are laws today against self we tend to think of um anti-drug laws in 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 modern terms but it, it was that was not the case in the 13 14 1500s and and they really what went in the ointments that was so was secondary to the concern that people were using them in the first place um there are some mentions though you get some brief mentions um uh gene vincent uh references mandrake other people meant uh reference toad poison a guy named uh, Matthias Chemnet, for example, mentions a uh, toad potion, or uh, rather, a uh, toad extract. Um, but you, you, you don't, you don't mostly get that from the inquisitors. You get the ingredients mostly from physicians who were also curious, uh, from a medical standpoint, as to right. what went into these ointments. So that's really what I focused on was um, what what. Um, physicians had to say about them because they had no dog in the fight they weren't trying to prove anything they were they were trying to say that witches didn't exist and look they're just under the influence of drugs um but right, you also right. have some theologians who said that as well johann nitter for example a very famous theologian who um really can't be lumped into that whole 
you know, uh, witch burning inquisitorial uh, stereotype. He wasn't that at all. He was actually a very calm, even tempered, reasonable person who just wanted to know what was going on. You also give us um, an evolution of the recipes of this uh, witch's ointment, which is very, very interesting because looking at those, we can see how the adulteration of this and and the corruption of this um, demonized recipes by the ingredients uh, that they were actually uh, told to have. Um, for instance, in 1484, in the witch's hammer, Malus Maleficarum, they say that the witch's ointment was done with or contained um, children's flesh. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So... Um, when did this whole thing became to be corrupted? And mostly the early 1400s, and it had to do with a lot of the calamities and catastrophes of the 1300s, uh, like the Black Plague, for example. Mm -hmm. um, what it was, it, it was an explanation for why uh, the, 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 the branch in theology is called theodicy, which is why is there suffering? And you have all of these clergymen saying, well, it's an all-powerful, all-loving God, right? So why why is all this, you know, all this? Why are all these bad things happening? Well, there must be witches, and it it the the transition from the heretical stereotypes to the witch stereotype happened mostly in the Alpine region, um, the border between Italy, Germany, France. Um, in um, the late 1300s, early 1400s, that's mm -hmm. where you start to see. And in fact, the um, there was a uh, an anonymous uh, tractate uh, wrote, uh, excuse me, written um, in 1437 called the Errores Gazari. Now, Gazari in this context, they mean Cathar, so it's like Cathari Gazari. That's what they're talking about. But they're not talking about the Cathar heresy that was stomped out or stamped out in the um, 1200s. They mean, when they say Cathar, they're talking about a slang term um, for witches. So what we're seeing is that witches are starting to be called heretics. Now, I have my own theories as to why that is, and I think that that's because in um, heretical societies, uh, women did have, especially the Cathars, and I, that might be why they called witches Cathari, um, had very prom were very prominent in medical roles, and it was a it was a um, an extension of the condemnation of the female heretical medicine woman onto the female medicine woman as witch. Again, a very complicated situation. <laughs> um, now, did you find Did you find out if men were all also included in this? In this, or oh, it was just women? No, um, actually, up until 1300, the majority of uh, witches burned were all men. Uh, I found also a, a case, uh, it's a rare case, but it, it, it's there, of uh, 1438, a guy named um, Peter Valen, was a male witch, was actually tried and condemned to be executed by a female judge, Eleanor of Grolia. Oh, that's very interesting. Right. So, yeah, it really it, 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 it turned the uh, it, it really turned the tables and, and of, of my preconceptions of what life was like in those days. Um, again, where uh, we're so convinced uh, by modern preconceptions about what the past was like. And then you look at the records and you're like, oh, wait a minute. It might not have been like that everywhere at all. And that's one of the things that it's weird. You have to look, and I don't want to make it sound like there, you know, were there were a plethora of female judges because there were not. It was just something that challenged my preconceptions. There were plenty of male witches. Um, it's only with the witch stereotype that they become predominantly female, and that has to do with, I mean, really just a host of different reasons um, that we can get into if you want. But it, it has more to do with. Um, just changing legal status of women healers. Uh, for example, in England in the 1400s, uh, you, you have physicians trying to ban women from medical practice 
mm-hmm. where in Italy, which is the main area, one of the main areas I should say that I researched, um, medicine women were were absolutely tolerated in their societies. There was no law against being a woman who practiced medicine. There just wasn't. You mentioned Italy. Why was Matuccia di Francesco so important for this book? She's so important because she is, as far as the records that have come down to us, she is the first person who seems to have used these magical ointments for entheogenic purposes that was bastardized as what would later be called a witch's ointment. And you can actually watch it happen in the records. You can you can watch in in the, the write-up of her supposed deeds uh, based off her interrogation where they're talking about all these very local magical practices um, that any kind of wise woman would be engaged in. And then when you get towards the end, you can actually watch the witch stereotype being a conspiratorial uh, witch who meets up with others to worship the devil to bring about hell on earth. You can actually watch that being forced into her mouth. Her record is crucial to understanding how this happens. Um, it, it's a bridge, almost, that you, don't, that you don't really see too often. But since it occurred so early in the records, it, it's, like the, it's like the witch stereotype was forced on her in this way that was just like with complete insouciance, I guess. Like, yeah, whatever, we're just going to do this because this is the going trend, so let's force this stereotype on her. And that's what makes her wreck. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's saddening and it's disheartening to read, but it's also for a historian, it's very valuable. Mm-hmm. And she has all the, the, um, the attributes of the stereotypical witch built into her record, so into her trial record. So what the book that, that I wrote actually does is deconstructs those stereotypes chapter by chapter mm-hmm. to show why it was exact. Again, there's that Tarantino film because it opens with right. her, but you don't get the full picture of what was going on until the last chapter. Right. Um, it, um, it just shows that, yeah, this, this is where these stereotypical elements came from. And there's very good reason to believe that the ointment that was demonized as a, as a witch's ointment, was actually some kind of entheogenic ointment. In terms of, of, of the uses of these ointments, potions, you know, you name it, um, what were the, the purposes that you found that were, you know, to, to do what, really? There's a friend of mine who says, you know, in the old craft, there was these needs. One of them was love, of course. Um mm-hmm. The other one was uh, health and mm-hmm. uh, the well-being. Yes. And then often, perhaps even, you know, money. So um, did you find in your research uh, similar themes being used? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Actually, Matucha's trial record is, is uh, filled with all that kind of stuff, uh, especially procuring love. She, she was something of a love magic specialist. Um, but you're right. in, in my opinion, um, your friend is a hundred percent correct. Um, they had many, many different uses, um, w- w- certain things like bewitchment, um, which was, uh, you know, slipping a drug secretly to somebody and then saying an incantation over them as the drug started to take effect. And that person would believe that you had this power and they'd maybe stop bothering you, um, so, you know, getting rid of like, a, and what, what I would love to, uh, there, it's like, there's so much missing. Um, I'd love to know if the wise women knew it was just the drug or believed that it was the drug mixed with the incantation or had no idea that the drug caused it. They just knew from traditional reasons they should use that. And maybe it was actually the incantation that worked. I would just, I'd love to sit down with one of them and ask, um, they um yeah they definitely used it to procure love or break up marriages um yes, yes. they uh these substances were used uh for these very interesting kinds of um christo pagan shamanistic magical medicine mm-hmm. uh different kinds of uh what we would call shamanism that really um um, uh, integrated pagan ideas with Christian ideas which is what right. what drove the clergy so so crazy. They, uh, 
it, it, it was that that mixing of it all. So, mm-hmm. I mean, what it comes to, there were so many different kinds of magical practices and magical beliefs, and it really came down to if you knew about these substances, how and where and when were you going to um, bring them in, into your magical practices? Right. And that's that. It, w- when you ask that question, the answer is uh, it's chaotic because. Different people had different magical practices, had different ideas about how the magical universe worked and used these substances to those ends that fit into their worldview, if that makes sense. Right. Um, One of the things that is very uh, prominent in these recipes is the use of, for instance, in love potions or love ointments, um, that would cause this inebriating, uh, almost ec- ecstatic um, state of the person who would be, you know, given these, um, is the use of ingredients that are very much related with uh, either the sexual uh, nature of the recipe. For instance, uh, if a love potion or a love recipe would have... Um, uh, you know, all of the basic uh, herbs in it. But they also would have pieces of either menstrual blood or um, hair, uh, pubic hair, or anything that would be related or even semen. So there is this whole thing and this whole idea of um, ingredients that were directly related with the nature of the recipe itself, um, working almost like a sympathetic uh in a sympathetic way um did you find this in your findings um in in what you did in your investigations about and your research about uh these recipes yes and it it's it's what you said is very important because there's a distinction there um for something like let's say a um uh, a a wise woman making a love potion, blood wouldn't do it. You needed menstrual blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you were a ceremonial magician um, trying to conjure a um, a demon, you needed your blood specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's um, yeah, no, I I I, I agree hundred percent with what you just said. Uh, there were. There were there were um, uh, uh, it was called sympathetic magic. And then I believe it's still called that today in some circles. Uh, the idea that there needs to be something there needs to be an attachment to what the spell is actually trying to do. So if you're trying to, again, right. win the favor of a young lady, like cutting my arm and putting blood in that potion is not going to do it. You need menstrual blood because of the sexual overtones of it Mm -hmm. Um, in the same regard as the ceremonial uh, I was about to say musician (laughs) magician (laughs) (laughs) you you couldn't just go you wouldn't if you're trying to conjure a demon or Mm -hmm. a daemon really which is the neutral spirit if you're if you're trying to conjure that you're not using the menstrual blood of a woman you have to use your own because it has to be tied to your intentions. Right. So I, I think you're on at least the, all the records that I've looked at would say that you are correct. So is there any hope for this theory about um, the witch's broom being rubbed with a witch's ointment um, factually and being, you know, uh, recovered or, uh, rescued mm-hmm. um, at all. I would be, again, I would be the first person to scream it from every rooftop if, if, if uh, one of these things existed, but it, it very much, unfortunately, seems to have been something invented in 1973. It just, yeah. there, there's, the, these theologians, a lot of the times, um, if you ask conspiracy theorists, they're going to say it was covered up. Well, it, it, it wasn't covered up. Um, the, the, these um, theologians wrote very openly about the practices that they encountered. And 
the idea of broom riding, uh, which we don't, we're not even 100% sure what, where that concept even comes from, appears at least 200 years before the first mention of what would later be called a witch's ointment. Right, right. Uh, Stephen of Bourbon uh, brings up, uh, he says it's odd in the, the 13th century, he says that uh, good women ride brooms and uh, evil women ride wolves. And you also have that that uh, picture of uh, Freig in the Schwelschlig, uh Cathedral in Germany, um, it, it's there, there's nothing to tie her to the idea that she masturbated with the psychoactive, uh, ointment covered broom. Um, she doesn't seem to have in, in her legends, any mention of the use of psychoactives. Um, it's just, uh, Michael Harner who came up with the idea in, in the, the shortest way to put it, he was not a historian. He was an anthropologist. And he very much um, did not understand the um, the kind of uh, um, uh, uh, let's see the truth protocols that we use in history to determine what is actual and what is not. Mm-hmm. Um, because since history is a is a science, but it's a science that cannot be reproduced in the lab. Uh, I can't actually reproduce a a witch trial in a laboratory to see what happened um but uh well so because of that uh historians had developed methodologies to guard against uh nonsense for lack of a better way of putting it and um uh in order to believe the whole broomstick thing you have to really just go right for the nonsense and ignore your better judgment. What were the uses of, of that you found for for the toad in terms of you know potions or ointments that you found that were relevant in terms of the purposes? Um, mostly they were used uh, for homicide, um, and and not in a sympathetic way in a at all. <laughs> draw the well in a in a draw the poisons out and kill somebody kind right? of one. yes. Um. Although there are cases where it was where you are absolutely correct, it's it's done symbolically. Um, the toad is a bit of an enigma because there's evidence that people did use it entheogenically, but there's very little evidence um, that the uh, what's it called? Would say the amount of tryptamines in the toad um, are found in Europe. Um, or in a European toad. Um, the ones when we tend to think about toad uh, potions and toad poisons and using toads as an entheogen, um, we're usually thinking of the desert toad, which is very high, in, go, <laughs> to, to use the pun, is very high in these kinds of entheogenic tryptamines. Now, mm-hmm. in Europe, we have, I mean, there's, it seems that there's something there that people were using we just don't know what kind of toad it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, again, they they when it came to so the the uses for toad that I found were obviously for for homicide purposes, but the two other uses one was in a Eucharist, um, and the the record actually describes the taking of this toad Eucharist in terms that bear out in modern clinical studies. Uh, At one particular ceremony, somebody imbibed too much of the toad potion and almost died, which is consistent with what we know about toad poisoning. Um, Other members that took a more responsible dose had these different visions of what was going on and, you know, had these just these experiences that we would call psychedelic. Now, that is right in line with what we know about modern uh, tryptamines coming from toads. We just don't know which toad in particular they had access to that had more of the tryptamine good stuff and less of the kill you bad stuff. Again, although in, in the one case I found, the, the somebody almost died because it was highly poisonous. 
Right. Now, the only other reference I found to toads that had nothing to do with homicide had to do with uh, werewolf transformation ointments. So, again, you have um, a reference to something that could be entheogenic stemming from a kind of toad that we're just not aware of yet because nobody has really looked into it. There's not this... There hasn't been great study into the, you know, the toads of the Appalachian Mountains or what could survive there. And it seems that whatever whatever kind of toad people were using um, for entheogenic person, uh, purposes, excuse me, uh, came from that region. What is your favorite route of bewitchment and why? I, I would say that I've, I've used specifically would be um, henbane. Why? Uh, because it doesn't care about you. Um, it's it, it's it is almost the entheogenic answer to the me first generation. It doesn't care about your self esteem. It doesn't care about who you think you are. It doesn't care about what your intentions are. Henbane is very much in the driver's seat and is so. It's a tough love, and I think that I, I'm an Italian from New York, so maybe I have a propensity towards the tough love aspects of life. Um, but Henbane was an amazing plant teacher to me because uh, it taught me to check my own BS about what entheogens are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess that would be it as far as the one that I found um, to be th that I grew the most from uh, working with. This is this is an incredible book. Uh, I know that you're planning on uh, maybe a collaboration, isn't it true? Yes, uh, with uh, Chris Bennett, uh, the right. author of. Um, I mean, he wrote a number of books on the topic. Uh, the the one my my personal favorite is uh, Soma and the um, no, excuse me, Cannabis and the Soma Solution. So right. uh, he and I right now are putting together a book about the um, Victorian use of entheogens. Uh, guys like Aleister Crowley um, used uh, mescaline and hashish in his uh, magical rituals. Um, uh, other people like Ware Mitchell and Havelock Ellis used mescaline and peyote uh, in more philosophical ways. And then you have the guys like Fitzhugh Ludlow, Thomas De Quincey, um, Yates and other poets and authors who used entheogens to tap into the creative potential of the human mind. So the book we're working on now, because um, I owe uh, part, part of my contract with um, Inner Traditions uh, Park Street Press is they have the right of first refusal for my follow-up book. And um, so this is uh, what we're going to be submitting to them, uh, you know, as part of my contractual obligation. In your in your um your biography, you say um in I think it's in the Inner Traditions uh, website that it says potion maker. Yes. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, so do you really? Yes. It's weird because so one of the things that I so this is I I straddle with my research the popular culture ideas and academic ideas. And I used to be very um, quiet about my own personal use of anything because uh, I came to realize that if you tell the general public, yeah, you know, I don't really use entheogens, their, their response is going to be, well, then how do you know any of this? You can't write a book about it, yada, yada, yada. And if I say to the academic world, well, yeah, I've used entheogens, they say, well, then all your work is completely biased and you're looking for connections that aren't there and yada, yada, yada. So um, <laughs> what it comes down to, which is odd, is that the the popular culture world and the academic world um, are in agreement uh, with the idea that they do not want to be handed anything that they're not comfortable with. And if you hand the pop culture world something about entheogens and they're under the impression that you are, you know, inexperienced they're going to flip out. Mm -hmm. And if you hand something to the academic world using all the rigorous 
academic methodologies and standards of historical inquiry, and you say, yes, I, I've used entheogens, they're going to say, well, that's colored your, all of your research. Right. So you're pretty much between a rock and a hard place. Um, what I've decided to do is I'm just going to be true to myself and true to my um, experiences and reality. And uh, I have used entheogens. And those entheogens in no way, shape, or form have colored my research. Because had they had, I would have written a book that says that people used to masturbate with hallucinogenic ointment-covered uh, brooms. Right. But, but I have academic integrity, so I do not. And um, what I'm hoping to do uh, with this is show that there is a middle ground between using academic standards, but also not being closed off uh, to the use of entheogens, which I am a, a very loud and um, proud supporter of. I, I think that they can do a lot of very good for the world. Uh, I, I guess that would be my uh, my statement on that. <laughs> Does your interest in uh, witchcraft history goes uh, beyond the 15th century? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, one of uh, until Chris Bennett approached me, I had um, a couple of book ideas in mind, and one of which had to do with just modern uh, pagan Wiccanism, and just to kind of shine a light on that and show like, hey, we're still here. <laughs> we didn't die off. Despite, you know, the the uh, the conflagrations of Europe, <laughs> there are still people uh, practicing this. And um, and it's a very real form of spirituality. And I um, I'm a religious uh, pluralist and I'm very much many paths up the same mountain. And um, if entheogenic use is uh, what works for you, then you have my full support. And if, you know, rejection or non-use of entheogens is what works for you, you have my full support. Where I get into trouble uh, with some people is when they start calling their theology history. Um, I had an interview recently where uh, the, the interviewer asked me, you know, a lot of uh, witches groups today actually use the craft as like an abstinence program to stay away from entheogens or drugs or whatever. Really? Um, yeah. And, and what I say is that's fine, <laughs> but that's not history. You're talking about theology now. And if your theology states that you should not dabble in these substances, uh, more power to you. I support you a hundred percent, but don't call it history because there's very concrete evidence that people all over the world in many places and throughout time have used entheogens for their spiritual practice. So I, I guess that's where I get testy is when people use their own theology to say that it's history. It's not. Two different disciplines. The book is available uh, on Amazon.com as well as on um, Inner Traditions website. And find bookstores everywhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you also have, um, people don't might not know this, but you do have a website uh, full of videos and discussions and uh, texts. Um, there is a section of uh, videos where you actually uh, discuss um, a couple of concepts that you think that they are actually either inaccurate or um, they don't serve the purpose. Um, yes, sacred weeds. Sacred Weeds, yes, that's the documentary. And um, but you do need a little bit more photographs in the website. Oh, I know. I'm the I'm the worst. I, I gotta be honest with you. I am so bad. I I'm and and I agree. You're hundred percent right. I do need more pictures up there. But I just I don't know. Like I I think that life is a gift and. Um, I, I love throwing myself into the oddest kinds of situations with the oddest kinds of people. And when all that madness is going on, like I don't have a space phone, so I don't have like a camera phone or anything like that. So I, it's, it's, I don't, I don't have a camera <laughs> in, in short. I, I, I don't have a camera handy that I could just pull out and be like, oh, I'm going to take a picture of this. Um, yeah, but uh, it's, it's, uh, 
the website is very good and and it has a lot of information i'm sure you're going to put like uh things from the next book and going into Absolutely. that also um there is uh of course text about the witch's ointment um early reviews of the witch's ointment you have also there uh the witch's ointment videos which is uh a couple of things that you're you were in the pro when you were in the process of doing the book you're talking about a couple of aspects of it um the holy mushroom which is the articles uh and also the holy mushrooms the videos where you actually combat all of those people um uh, well, and why <laughs> them to come up with better evidence because what right, they've right. presented is not very i mean it, it's from an academic standpoint i, I mean from, you know forget academic from a common sense standpoint it is absolutely laughable it's yes laughable. yeah 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 no no absolutely and that's why i like them because you just point a couple of things it's very interesting um other writings and then you have the content in the web journal so um if people want to check it out just like the masturbating broom hallucinogenic ointment thing yeah. i would be so excited if actual evidence for a holy mushroom was brought forth because it would be a huge boon to my research one of the things that i think a lot of my critics don't understand is that i i have no reason to not be in favor of the holy mushroom theory I have every incentive. I would be able to apply for far more research grants and I'd get way more money and uh, like so many other benefits if it were true. The reason uh, it's not so much I'm calling it out, I'm challenging them to actually come up with real deal evidence and they just don't have any, which is why they say there was a cover up, which is always a sure sign that people are talking out of their rear ends. Right. Um, we're going to be waiting for your new book. Um, it's uh, the use of entheogens in the uh, Victorian era, which is very, very exciting. The Victorian era, essentially, is what it comes down to. Yep. Right. And I'm very excited about that. Yeah, um, me too. And uh, thank you so much for being on the black chair. Thank you so much, Carrigan. This has really been great. I appreciate it. <laughs>